The title for this morning's message is Troublesome Prayers. And I wonder if you have ever read the scriptures and you look at what is written and you think, my word, I don't, I don't know if I, if I understand that. Not only do I not understand it, everything in me repels against it. Some passages of scriptures are hard to understand. And they are, if they are in scripture, they are there for us to understand them. And it might take more than what explanation a human being can give. In studying for this text this morning, these are some of the things I came across. For the, Number one, I looked through the, the works of several authors and speakers and they are doing a study of the Psalms and they get to Psalm 128 and they skip and go to Psalm 130. Because when, when, you, when you look at this Psalm, it's going to say certain things that will cause your mind to wonder, how can a prayer like this be in the Bible? There are some who believe that a prayer like this does not belong in the Bible in the first place and that the God, please listen, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. That's how difficult some of these things are. And God has, I believe, has put difficult passages in the Bible for us to, to, to see and to read to make us understand that the Bible hasn't to do with human understanding. It is not human authors giving their opinions about life. It is God telling us what life is really all about. And we want to look at this psalm this morning with the help of God, the Holy Spirit, so that I do not give you my opinion about the Word, but I say what the Word is saying and trust God that He will apply it to us. I came across something that happened this past week. Two things, actually. I was sharing a little bit of this with my wife on the way here this morning. A leading preacher in America said this, and I have it written down so I have the direct quote. The Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. Peter, James, and John, I'm sorry, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, that is the Old Testament. And as the church today, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures. Ladies and gentlemen, if we do that, we do not need Genesis. If we do that, we do not need to worry about sin. If we do that, we do not need to worry about the origin of marriage. That's where we find it all. But if we do that, we will get away from the prophecies that Jesus made concerning, that were made about Jesus in the Old Testament and Jesus verified in the New Testament. So it is against Scripture. It's just that we live in a time when faith does not make sense with technology. When we look at what we have been able to accomplish in Belgium, 
this past week. Laws were passed several weeks ago, several months ago. Belgium was the first country in Europe to make laws saying that suicide can be had by anyone for any purpose, anyone that is 18 years old and older. This week, Belgium passed a law that anyone can commit suicide, no matter how young they are. All they have to be is to be fed up with life. And they could ask someone to do it for them. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because, my friends, whenever we take God out of the picture, anything goes. Whenever God is, is ejected from the society, from the culture, it will not be impossible to realize the unimaginable. What we could not imagine will take place. And if we think that those things can happen, and God is just going to stand by and let it happen, we are deluding ourselves. And this is what this, this, this we call them in the, in the Bible, imprecatory prayers. That's a, that's a frightening word. Because a prayer of imprecation means that you're asking God to invoke a curse or evil upon the people who are doing what they're doing. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, and the New Testament dealing with Jesus saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself, how can you put these two things together? Is there not a conflict between the old and the new when Jesus says one thing and their prayers mentioned in the Old Testament in another way? Let's see if we can answer that question this morning. As you look at Romans, uh, as we look at the text from Psalm 129, verses 5 to 8, there are two things that are very important to begin to understand how this prayer, what this prayer, and why this prayer. First of all, the motive for it. The motive. It is a prayer. In, in fact, it's not only a prayer. It is a song. <laughs> it's a hymn. Psalm 129 is a hymn where, where the people are singing their prayers, as we were doing this morning in the last song. But the motive for this prayer is seen in Psalm 129, verses 1 to 4. I'll be brief with them because we went through them last week. The motive for the prayer in Psalm 129, 1 to 4. Number one, or A, in your outline, is the affliction by the enemy. The affliction by the enemy. Many times... Let Israel say, many times we have been persecuted. And that word persecute means to put a narrow, narrow way so that, so that there is no place to move. That every place that they turned, the enemy was there. Uh, it brings to my mind when, when Lois and I were in Israel and, and we went to the Golan Heights. As we stood there, our, our, our guide was saying to us, listen, it's like if you take, if you take a, um, a map and you, you look at it, Israel is surrounded by enemies, every place, and they were just about here. And, and when you think of how the Six-Day War was won, you ask yourself, how could a country surrounded by enemies defeat so, defeat so many other countries? 
many times we have been afflicted not only, not only once, not twice, but it came and it came. You remember I told you last week how many times this little country has been surrounded, invaded. How many times it has been surrounded? How many times it has been captured? And they're reminded of what happened when they were making their way back to Jerusalem. There was no space for them to move. The enemy would not let them march through their country to get to where they were going. And so there was repleted affliction. Don't forget that word, affliction. It means to be confined, to be surrounded by. They were the enemies. In fact, the enemies, we'll see, were such that it was just amazing that they made it in the first place. But there was resentment. There was resentment. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Let those who hate Zion, may all who hate Zion. You see, for many of us, we say Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is not Jerusalem. Zion is the special place of God's presence. And from that place, God blesses Jerusalem. So if we hate Zion, it means we hate God. Remember then that the enemy is not only against the people of God. They are against the God of the people. They're doing things to the people of God because they can't get to God. And so they hate. That means that they move around. They move around with this emotional passion of doing away not only with God, but with his people. I heard something this past week that was most telling. If an Arab soldier is treated by a Jewish doctor, and it is known that he has been treated, he will be killed by Arabs anywhere he's found. Resentment. You allow a Jew to touch you, and immediately he's done away with. That's the resentment that they have up to this minute for the nation of Israel. Affliction of the enemy. Look at the aim of the enemies. The aim. I'm going to read just a few passages for you. I'll give you a few passages and then I'll read one. But if you're taking notes, Esther chapter 3 verse 6. The desire was to get rid of the Jews. Psalm 78, 74 verse 8. To get rid of the Jews. Jeremiah eleven nineteen. But I want you, I want you to listen to Psalm 83, Psalm 83, 1 to 8. Listen as I read it. This is a prayer. Oh God, do not keep silent and do not hold your peace or be still, oh God, for behold, our enemies are in an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay craftly plans against your people. 
they consult against you and your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out of as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one mind, one purpose. Against you they have made a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites and Moabs, Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of, of Tyre and Asher, has also joined them. They are as the strong arm of the children of Lot, and their whole passion coming together. They may differ on a lot of things, but when it comes to hating God, they are one. When it comes to hating God's people, they are one. That's why, my friends, I want you to understand what was the motive for this prayer. You see, what the, what the psalmist was saying, the only thing we had because of what the enemy was doing, we couldn't look to the right because there was no one there. We couldn't look to the left because there was no one there. We couldn't look behind us because there was no one there. We couldn't look in front of us because there's no one there. You know, the only place they could look was up. Several years ago, I'll never forget this, I was taking my little girl, she was a little girl then, Heather was in grade six, and I was driving her to her school, and I was listening to the news, as I always do, and uh, a news item came on that a young girl was molested in the schoolyard, and, and Heather heard that, and Heather said to me, Daddy, <laughs> What would you do if that ever happened to me? Preach to the man? I said, yes, and so, as soon as I'm finished. <laughs> My friends, every time you and I are confronted by disgusting things, we want something to be done about it. There is something in our constitution that says, this is not right. Something should be done. No one should be able to do what they have done and get away with it. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But you see, there's the aim. And here's the answer. The answer is in verse 4. And that answer says this. Righteous are you, O God. You are righteous. And if there is a God, this thing will not go unpunished. If there is any decency in God at all, He will do something about it. And He begins to meditate upon who God is. He is righteous. That means He's just. It means he can be trusted. And when we go through the difficult times, when we see and we hear things happening, this God is a God that can be trusted even when he cannot be traced. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, a favorite verse of mine. 2 Chronicles 20, 12. Jehoshaphat is surrounded by enemies. And he prays to God and he says, Oh God, we don't know what to do. 
but our hope is in you. And my friends, which of us has not been through that in our lives? In our homes? When we see and we hear things, and we wonder, why is this happening? Phil Yancey has written a book which has become a bestseller, Where is God When It Hurts? And my answer is the same place he is when we're not hurting. Sitting on the throne, and it's interesting that that verse was read to us this morning from Psalm 29, and I'm almost amazed at this, that when certain people, and I don't tell them what I'm speaking on, and they don't come and ask me, they just choose the text to read, to open the scriptures, and the scriptures this morning open with Psalm 29, God sits as king on the floods. And flood always speaks of destruction. And floods always speak of division. And yet the text says God sits. So when bad things are happening, friends, it is not because God is absent. It is not because God is indifferent. It's that we trust upon the integrity of God that the other side of this, God is going to do something about this that will satisfy me and bring glory to him. In saying that the Lord is righteous, the psalmist is saying that the faithfulness of God and the integrity of God is the only hope we have when things are falling apart around us. It's the only thing we have. So we turn now to the psalm itself that was read for this morning. We want to look at the manner. What is the content of this prayer? Please remember this first of all. This prayer is not a prayer of vindictiveness. The psalmist is not saying, God, get him because I can't stand him. That's not what he's saying. He's appealing to the righteous God, and he cannot ask a righteous God to commit evil to suit him. He's going he's to say, God, please act according to your own integrity. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, the prophet Habakkuk said, God, you are of purer eyes than to behold what's going on. Please do something. We want to look at, at a couple of three things in this prayer. First, the detail of the prayer. The detail of it. Please listen to this. Let them be confounded. That is, he's asking God, the only one who can frustrate the plans of the enemy to destroy us is you. You are the only one who can do it. And, and, and they're, 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 to confound them means is to cause them confusion so that they do not know exactly what they're doing. In New Testament terms, we like to pray that the providence of God will rule and overrule in the affairs of men. And friends, we better be thankful that he's able to do that. We better be thankful. Let them be embarrassed. Let them be brought to shame. Only you can do that. And may I suggest to you again, those of you who were around in 1967, others of you were not, 1967 was a six-day war. And all the Arab nations surrounded Israel on the Golan Heights. 
this one little country, the United Nations, stood against it. Even the United States was somewhat embarrassed to say that they were supporting Israel. The Golan Heights was occupied by the Jordanians and the Egyptians. And at the end of six days, it was occupied by Israel. Why? Moshe Dayan, who was the, the human mind behind the whole thing, someone asked Mr. Dayan, you remember him because he had a patch on his eyes, if you remember that. Someone asked Mr. Dayan, how did you do that? How were you able to get behind the Golan Heights when it was protected by these nations? And, and his response, I love it. He said, I have read my Old Testament. I have read my Old Testament. And what, what did that Testament promise? You know what it promised? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And the two nations in the Middle East right now, as I speak, the two nations that are tentative friends with Egypt, uh, with, with, with Israel, are Egypt and Jordan, the two countries they defeated in 1967. Let them let be confounded. And let them be ashamed. I, I, want, to, I want to read, my friends, what, what they did. Let me take time to do that. Psalm 83, 9 to 18. See, this is what they're, they're facing. I should have written it down before, but I didn't, but I thought I would read it. Psalm 83, 9 to 18. Let me read it for you. Verse 9. Deal with them as at Mid Midian. These are where things happened in the past. As with Caesarea and Jabin in the torrent of Kishon who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and their princes like Zeba and Zalumnia, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pasture of God. O oh God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff behind the wind. Why? Because their whole purpose was to get rid of us. They were more than we are. They were stronger than we are. And our only hope is in you. So we are asking, and you will see in a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. The detail is, is, is giving us what they have done, how they did it. They destroyed the temples. They dashed the little ones aside. They turned to the right and there was no one who cared for them. And now they're saying something to God. It is more than human eyes can take. Please do something about what is happening. And so the detail of their prayer, my friends, and you and I, you and I can't really understand that because we live in a safe country. We live in a peaceful country. 
we are not despised because, you know, the, you know sometimes if you are a, a, a Jew, people would move out of their community because they didn't want to live where you lived, because you will cause their property prices and values to, to decrease. People make jokes about them. Have you ever said, you're trying to Jew me? That's a designation for the Jews who are always trying to get something for other people. There is this passionate hate for this nation. And they're remembering it. And they give the detail. Look at, look at, what, look, look at what they do. They make, like, like someone takes a, a lawnmower and go over a lawn. That's how they have come upon us in our flesh. And they have just done evil things to us. Please don't forget that. So in, 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 in this detail of prayer, and you see what he's doing, why is this prayer in the Bible? That's what we want to answer this morning. Please listen. This prayer is in the Bible for one purpose only, and here's the purpose. Every human heart longs for justice. Every human heart longs for justice. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter in whichever way. We want justice, and what is justice? Justice, my friends, is to be treated fairly without having to be degraded or to be destroyed or demeaned simply because of what I am or who I am. Justice means that fairness will take place when there are difficulties. Proverbs 29 verse 26 reads, Many seek, many seek from the rulers their favor. But justice for man comes from the Lord. Dear friends, you may have gone through things that were so difficult to deal with that you wonder if God was there. I have been there. I could remember times in my life when I put my head in my hands and I asked God, Are you there? Are you there? And I am comforted by the promise of God. That God who sits upon the circles of the earth beholds the good and the evil. And because he is righteous, what evil can accomplish in this life is not all that evil will accomplish. You remember Psalm 73? The psalmist said, I looked at the wealth and the riches and the powerful, and I said, oh, I'm envious of them. Look at how easy they're living. And then the psalmist said, I was envious of those who were at ease until I went in to the house of God, and then I understood. Then I understood. The desire was, was for Justice. Because justice, my friends, is in the very constitution of our being. Justice is in the constitution of nature. 
Justice is how God deals with what is wrong. He just doesn't lose his temper. Just, just think, just think. If God should ever deal with injustice the moment it happens, how many of us would be here this morning? Frightening, isn't it? The psalmist said it, Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? Who could stand? What, what do I mean by justice? My friends, what I mean by justice, I mean that six million Jews will not be destroyed and those who perpetrated it will get away with it. It means that situation where you were treated, treated unjustly, God will take care of the outcome. We can trust him for that. God is not unjust to forget, forgive, uh, forget what you have you've done. Isaiah 49, 4 says, The justice due to me is with the Lord. I, I, I remember... I was traveling with someone and, and, and this person used a statement that was so derogatory. And, and in the midst of that statement that was used, it, it wasn't against me, but it related to me. Listen, I was comforted to know that that statement did not come from God. It came from a man, and man can do anything. But when God acts, he acts with justice. He makes sure that what is right will remain right, and what was wrong will be judged. Let me give you two passages. People say this is only the... That kind of a thing is only from the Old Testament. No, my friends, it's not. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, New Testament. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. God is saying, let it be. That is why Christians don't kill for their faith. They will die for it, but they will not kill for it because vengeance belongs to God. My friends, only if we trust a righteous God can we leave the outcome of things to Him. But listen to this one from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. This is in, 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 the, in the day to come. When the angel opened the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9 to 11, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness that they bore, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Here, my friends, 
The Bible opens for us a scene in heaven where there are martyrs, those who were killed for no other purpose than that they were the people of God. They, they testified to believing God and they were martyred, they were killed. And in the holding pattern in heaven, they're saying to God, how long before? You see, they're saying, I know that there is something beyond this for me, but when will you do it? When are you going to, when are you going to make things right, Lord, on the earth? They're still there. And here I am. How long, Lord, will you bring judgment on them? And he's not asking for vengeance. He's going by the righteousness of God. If God is righteous, he cannot allow evil to triumph. If God is righteous. But let me close. Let me close. But I want you to see what I call the divinity in the prayer. That, 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 that justice is a part of the passion of the mind of God. And when the people of God trust Him, this is what they call for. And I want to give you, my friends, one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture that speaks of justice. You know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Note that. Whoever believes will not perish. So if you don't believe, you perish. Because God is righteous. And some, some, even some Christian leaders have revolted against this. They say, hell is not for the Christian religion, my friends, the person who introduces hell to us is Jesus Christ. And if he says it, whoever, he's the one who's telling us this verse, if you don't believe, you perish. That's justice. If you please, the injustice was on our part that he died for sins he didn't commit. Let, let me continue. That only those who believe will not perish. The cross offers forgiveness for those who believe, not to those who don't. And so, my friends, I want, I want to, to say to you this morning, don't play with your destiny. For Jesus died to protect you and to preserve for you an eternity of security. You will only have it in Him, not apart from Him. I said to my wife on the way here, I am troubled about the message I had to preach this morning. And I'm only troubled, my friends, because it is true. And sometimes we want to say something that will, will give the people a sense of something else. Do you know, my friends, do you know that every time you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say, Thy kingdom come, do you know what you're asking? Exactly what we have in Psalm 129. Because when God's kingdom come, justice will be on the earth. God will repay the behavior of those whose behavior confronted God, destroyed his people. When God's kingdom come, that's what will happen. I, I find a very interesting portion of scripture. 
in 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul is about to die. And he said this, writing to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did much harm, evil. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, much evil. That's the word. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Justice. That whatever Alexander did to me, I won't pay him because he did it to me because I represent him. And whatever is deserving of the judgment concerning the church, the body of Christ, God will take care of the end result. Why? Because God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And how, how do we know this is true? Because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the signature of God that justice will one day take place on the earth. And when you read Psalms like this in Psalm 137, and other psalms, my friends, with some, remember that the psalmist is appealing to God that whatever was done to them, God will repay those who have done it. And I trust that you are comforted in some explanation for the imprecatory prayers that it is an appeal to God for justice for us. Let's pray. Father, I trust that your spirit has made known to every bowed head the central theme of this word this morning, that imprecatory prayers are prayers for justice, but justice for man comes from God. And we may appeal to God, we may appeal to God that he will take note of what is being done and that he will appropriately respond. And this is what the psalmist, they have done this and may you take vengeance on what they have done. Give us a passion, Lord, not only for justice, but for mercy and that we might be the people of God reaching out to those who do not believe in Christ but living such a life that they will want to ask the reason for the hope that is within us so that we're able to tell them Jesus Christ died for me on the cross that I might be delivered from the judgment of God. That's why I am and that's why I have hope. And I pray, Lord, for anyone bowed here who has never asked Christ into his life or her life Oh, Father, I pray that they did not hear a man speaking, but God's Spirit saying, Come to me, and I will deliver you from the wrath to come. May they trust Jesus Christ this morning. And may they know deliverance from that which is to come. And for those of us who have received Christ as Savior, oh, God, Help us not to take for granted our salvation, but that we set no stumbling block before any, 
so that when they see us, they wonder if God is really existing. But that when they see us, they will know that he does exist. For look, look at the quality of life this person lives. Look at the quality of love with which this person loves. Look at the quality of hope with which this person lives. And when they ask, may we be ready with a humble heart to say, it is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.